This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to another edition of Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. As we approach the 2020 National Handicapping Championship, I can't think of a better way to kick off Season 4 of our Can Do podcast than interviewing Peter Thomas Fornitale, who has done so much to promote contest play, and Eric Wing, Communications Director for Horse Tourneys and a longtime host of the NHC. When I listen to the interview with Peter, one word comes to mind. Raconteur. Current, funny, erudite, and a racing fan. What more can you ask? Listen, I'm easily impressed, but I'm especially impressed by anyone who is actually, for real, read James Joyce's Ulysses and can use the phrase dissolution of multiculture and obviously know what it means. As you can imagine, our conversation went in lots of different directions. Peter's journey from son of a renowned disc jockey to the founder of the In The Money Media Network. The need for all of us to be, as Peter and previous guest John Engelhart said, ambassadors for our sport. Like John Engelhart, fun people we have run across in our racing travels, and some thoughtful prescriptions for how we might chart a course forward for our sport. I appreciate Peter spending time with me for this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, Peter, thanks again for for joining us today. I know that you are uh, all over horse racing media, and you are, uh, you know, other journalism uh, associated endeavors as well. You've been a a writer, a commentator on whether it's baseball, spirits, poker, professional wrestling. I would say all the manly arts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I suppose, uh, and, and this is true in my own case too, media journalism came kind of naturally to you. you um, or I think, at least, your dad was a very highly regarded uh, DJ in FM radio back in New York in the day, right? That's exactly right. I like to say I grew up in a rock and roll milieu. <laughs> very good. I love the French. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did, did being exposed to your dad and, and, and his profession naturally kind of grow that interest in journalism and media for you? Yeah, I never really considered myself a journalist, but I think what happened is being around radio and being very in tune with the magic of radio from an early age had an impact on me and the way I view the world. And I was always very interested in storytelling, and it seemed to me there were some very specific kinds of stories and some very specific magic you have when you're dealing with radio, where some may see them the radio medium as being uh, limited, but I, I saw those supposed limitations as a way to be more creative and to communicate with people in a more direct and intimate way. And that's something I've always been attracted to. And it's sort of ironic that my career went in a very different direction 
for a very long time. And in fact, when I got into doing audio in anything like a professional way, it was really as a moonlighting gig when I started working at Daily Racing Forum, where I went to help them market horse racing contests uh, online and in-person tournaments. But the same day I started, a young guy named Matt Bernier started, and we got to brainstorming and very excited about the idea of doing a horse racing podcast. At that time, there wasn't a whole lot. Derek Simon had the old You Bet show, and I honestly don't know that there was anything else when we started the then DRF Players podcast in November of 2014. But it Hmm. was sort of funny. Make no mistake. At that time, I was getting zero dollars for doing audio. My job was writing for the paper and writing online. And now, uh, five years later, all the income I derive from horse racing, not all, but (laughs) 80% of it is coming from the fact of doing an, an audio show. And it's very similar to radio in so many ways. I feel like I've finally ended up uh, following in my father's yeah. footsteps after all. Yeah, you've you've kind of vectored back, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. I, I was interested in doing radio in my college years, but was quickly turned off just by how uh, commercial it was at the time. And even in college radio, I was getting told by a program director that the, you know, the song Uh, the Paul Simon song I played on his birthday wasn't alternative enough. And I was like, all right, well, if I can't play Paul Simon on his birthday in college, I I don't think this is the (laughs) career path for me. And ended up pivoting and going into book publishing, which is where I think I got a lot of my marketing brain that I'm applying these days to horse racing and thinking about how how to sell books isn't really that different from thinking about how to sell shows to to different it's a little bit different in that we're not marketing we are marketing to the end user but we're really marketing to our our partners uh and the industry people who have enabled me to have this as a ridiculous 2019 profession where i can say i'm a podcaster i you know it's the beautiful thing about the era we live in professions that would have been deemed you know unthought of or ridiculous even 10 15 years ago now are are quite possible it's the it's what technology has enabled, I, I would say, and uh, kudos to you for taking advantage of it. Well, thank you. And, and you know, it's, it's a give and take thing. I mean, there are some aspects of the dissolution of monoculture, as I refer to it. The sort I love of old that school term. world. I that, yeah. by the way? <laughs> oh, sure. It's, I, think it's a th- I think it's a thing. It, it, there was ways in which media was curated that were, I think, in some ways beneficial to the culture at large. But it also meant, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. a limit to the number of voices you could hear. And there was, you know, growing up, I, there were there was a horse racing radio show. I remember Jody McDonald on the old WFAN, and, and he would get to talk about racing once in a blue moon. And I think uh, New York City OTB sponsored some content. But, I mean, the idea of being able to do racing radio in the old world of media, it almost didn't exist. And now for us to be able to market so directly to, and and it's not just, I keep saying marketing and and I'm not that cynical. It's also creating a community Mm -hmm. of like-minded horse players and giving us a place to get together and virtually hang out. It's, it's a pretty special thing that couldn't have existed in those old, in that old world situation. So it, the, the changing of media, it, it gives and it, takes away but I, I for one have to consider myself at least at this point one of the one of the winners in terms of how that media landscape has shifted
Well, uh, as tempting as it is, I think all of us, uh, one of the lessons you're going to learn in life is you might as well embrace the new because it's going to go on with you or without you, right? Um. <laughs> Very well put. And, and I think that's, I think that's right. And I think it's, it's good advice. And it, it makes me think of horse playing too. And the most successful horse players that I know are not people who say, but this is how it was 10 years ago, or even this is how it was five months right. ago. You like a shark, you've constantly got to be moving forward or you're going to die. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. You know, I'm, and I'm one of those old timers, I would say, who from time to time will say things like, I wish they ran 11 times as a two-year-old like Secretariat did, but but they don't anymore. And that, that's it. You know, so you have to accept what it is and, and uh, you know, learn to, how do you make, how do you make the current realities of the game work to your advantage? I think that's right. Or at least accept them and have the best experience in this new world that you can. I think it was indubitably better gambling game, better sport when horses ran more. And I think there's a lot of reasons why they don't. And I mean, a lot of them are, they're quite legitimate in, in a lot of ways. And I, and I do think I'm one of the people who's of the belief that racing surfaces have changed and horses really are faster than they ever were before. And part of the reason for that is the way that they're trained now. And I get it from the point of view of these owners and these trainers, that makes sense. We as the fans lose, and that's a bummer, but it also kind of is what it is. And I still think racing has a lot of positives to offer amidst the the, the sea of, of uh, negatives you'll sometimes hear about on, on social media or even in the national media. There's plenty here to keep us going, and I just try to do the best I can to champion the best ideas going forward that are going to help the sport long term. And, you know, I actually had uh, John Englehart on as a guest last season. And, you know, John mentioned uh, being an ambassador for the game. And that, I think, is something that we all, those of us who are involved in, who have chosen to, you know, make efforts to publicize the game more that we we have to do, whether it's getting people out to the track or um, getting them excited about the Triple Crown, uh, you know, whatever we can do. Because there there are a lot of positives here. Um uh, the sport has unfortunately been the you know uh, subject to some negative media over the last year, and some of it, quite frankly, I think is is self inflicted um, or, or poorly handled. Uh, yeah. You know, there's the, those of us. There, there are those, and I'm not going to name names, but but in, in senior positions who have handled some of these situations incredibly badly, and it's it's really, I think, for people like you and me, that's very sad because we know how much the people in the game in this game love the game and love the horses. Uh, and so it's incumbent on us to do what we can to, to turn that around. I think I'm glad you mentioned John. He was somebody else who his podcast was probably extant back in that era. And I do think his attitude and I love the, the regular guy yeah. <laughs> he used to do at, at river down. Right. I, when I went, I did a book event there. I think it was when six secrets of successful betters came out. So we're talking mid two thousands and I, I'd never seen I'd never seen somebody portray racing uh, as that fun, you know, and believe me, I get into the academic uh, side of handicapping and, and mm -hmm. horse playing. But the idea that here was somebody out there uh, talking about all the it really seemed like fun came first. And, and I feel like that rubbed off on me in that moment. And it's something we've taken into taken into our own uh, our own shows over on the In the Money Media Network. And that's a great point about how I think at this point, I don't think racing, I mean, gosh, maybe I sound naive now with some of the stuff you you, you hear and see, but I, I don't know that it's the the fight for racing is uh, as mortal peril as it as it seems sometimes. I think this is, is a really 
uh, rough patch as much as anything else. But I do think that one of the things fans can do, and, and I think it's almost incumbent upon us to do if we really love racing at this point, is to be that little bit of an ambassador and just try to show people what's fun about it, whether it's hosting a Kentucky Derby party or putting an outing of your friends from work together to go out there or to explain, no, no, that th this is not what uh, th these you know, possibly well-meeting but ultimately misguided animal rights activists say it is. This is a sport right. where, for the vast majority of people, the horse comes first and the horses are treated better than most people. And the, the, by the vast, major, overwhelming majority of people uh, love these animals and explain to them the realities as opposed to what might get a little bit sensationalized in the news media. I think that's very well put. Uh, Peter, you mentioned uh, John Engelhardt, his regular guy, which which was I actually lived in Cincinnati for a number of years when he was doing that in the Cincinnati area when he was doing that. It was him and uh, Kevin Gomer were very entertaining uh, in in their almost guerrilla uh, media efforts. Um, and you also mentioned the how to call them the olden days of horse racing radio and things like that. And uh, when I, when my interest in racing first started growing again, uh, because I was interested in it as a youngster and then, uh, probably, you know, for some time after college was mildly interested, but really began to grow again when I got to, uh, even though I lived in Boston, I got to watch another, uh, regular guy with whom you are very familiar, uh, weekly, maybe sometimes twice a week on TV. And that is of course, Harvey Pack. <laughs> love to talk about harvey we had lunch on monday oh no way going strong That's great. up in in the uh 90 something years old now and still telling stories about the old days and really talk about somebody who changed the media landscape and is still legend among a lot of people yeah. in new york and, and in kentucky too because they had sports channel in kentucky the show was broadcast there and back in the day some of the younger people listening won't won't believe it when we say there were no internet replays. <laughs> there were, there were right. hardly any replays. Right. If you wanted to watch your horse run, you know, you, you had to get an early version of a, a VCR and tape uh, tape, tape yep. Harvey show yep. <laughs> and 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 watch him there. And even before that, he was a, a pioneer in racing media with the the race reproductions he used to do. He would recreate the calls yes. so that people could hear. When he initially came up with the idea. It was it was laughed at out of the game. What was what's this for bookmakers? Because of course at the time there was no simulcasting. You had to be on track to bet. Right. But then with the advent of New York City OTB, just a great example of how the landscape can change. Once New York City OTB came along, all of a sudden this became a great idea. And there was Harvey on the radio in the afternoons. Harvey, I got a chance to work with him, the Ciro seminars back in the day, mm -hmm. and then I got a chance to work with him on the book. And he's somebody. I mean, just uh, one of the biggest influences on me. Somebody, again, who um, underlined that same lesson that it's not just about uh, cashing tickets and winning and studying and, and making money at the track, but the track is actually a, a really fun place where you lifelong friendships can be made. Trickier now, but it can still happen, especially oh, yeah. in the world of handicapping contests. But that's a lesson Harvey really helped me get in touch with, as well as just trying to find the right way and the right voice to tell the stories of the track, to capture them in a way that our fellow horse players will understand. I mean, he is just a, a dyed in the wool horse player. He's still, he's betting small, but he's still playing to this day. <laughs> and it's always a pleasure to talk to him about uh, his life and what's going on in racing. And, and I just, I feel very, very lucky to call him a friend, a true, true legendary broadcaster and still going strong. 
Well, I think one of the things that uh, I think immediately attracts people to or attracted people to Harvey and probably still does is that at least when he was on television back in the day, you knew right away he was no different on the air than he was off the air. Right? <laughs> That's about right. I mean, maybe a little bit funnier on the air. He told me uh, he told me he has got a great story. Oh, I think I'm going to butcher it, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, with, with it was one of his grandsons explaining uh, he he. He met somebody, some fan along the line, and 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 the fan was like wanting one of his greatest hits or something. You know, basically, Harvey, will you, will you be funny? And the the grandson said, he's he's only funny if you pay him, but <laughs> not <laughs> not actually true. He's pretty funny in real life too. Yeah, it's I think like many um, like many TV characters, it's it's really just a version. It's just a slightly outsized version of yourself, and I think that's right. I think that's right with with Harvey, just as uh, can be just as sharp, incisive, and uh, some might say curmudgeonly uh, off air as on. And it, it's one of the things I, I love about hanging out with him to this day. He'll, he'll, these odds on to get, get me doubled over at least twice during one. <laughs> well, I will confess to uh, stealing one of his taglines from time to time in my own podcast here, but I'll tell you a, a funny story. Um, I used to do what you suggested. I would tape thoroughbred action uh, every day so I could get the race replays. Um, and uh, I used to, I'd get home from work five thirty, six o'clock in the evening and I'd, we'd have dinner and I'd pop the tape in. And more often than not, my kids would sit around and watch it with me. Because um, even in their young days, they recognized that Harvey was a pretty funny guy. And, and we used to make, you know, imaginary bets against each other and things like that. So... Flash forward, oh, it had to be 10 to 15 years later. Um, I'm sitting with my son at Ciro's waiting for the seminar to start. And because uh, I knew who he is, he walks by us. He's, you know, he's old. He's, he's bent over. He's, he's moving with some difficulty. He's got a wad full of papers. And he gets up to the microphone and he starts talking. All of a sudden, my son gets this beaming look on his face. And he leans over to me and says, Dad, this is the May the Horse Be With You guy. <laughs> 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 oh, the voice gives it away. The voice gives it away for sure. Those inimitable uh, New Yorker tones exactly. from Harvey Pack. <laughs> that was such a pleasure. Where th That day you were there, I, it's extremely likely I was sitting on the side of the stage with a pair of headphones Correct. on pointing at Correct. Harvey when it was time to talk. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> that is absolutely right. So, so Peter, you've written, I, I know you, uh, well, let's talk about your horse racing running first. You started working at the forum and, and uh, writing about contest play. My, my question for you is, and I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke in any direction or anything, but do you think that contest play was beginning to take off and, and you know, that was a wave that you got on and helped further or, or did you help propel that or is it a little bit of both? I think daily racing forms, uh, brief commitment to the contest scene certainly helped and and part of that was giving me a, a little bit of a platform and i do think players enjoyed reading about themselves and reading about other players and i think publicizing horse players as stars just the way that it helped in poker to propel that uh, game forward helped with horse racing too so i mean i think anybody in that role uh, could have done it but i happen to be the guy so in, in that sense i can maybe take a j just a little bit of credit but I also I took the role very seriously as an ambassador. And to this day, when people are interested in maybe checking out contests, which I still believe are some of the best opportunities out there for gamblers, mm -hmm. I, I welcome them uh, to come and ask me questions. I, I with the, as much of that world that I've seen over the course of the last 
whatever it's been now, six or seven years, I feel like if I talk to you for five minutes about sort of what your gambling personality is and what your handicapping style is, I can probably point you to the events that are that are right for you. And I've had a lot of people over the years reach out to me like that, and including my uh, the greatest uh, success story in that realm, my good friend and business partner, Jonathan Kinchin, who mm. called me out of the day, out of the blue one day, I think it was to talk about strategies for playing multiple entries in an online tournament. And out of that uh, conversation grew his eventual um, joining the podcast. He's still with us today. He's the, the, the chief creative officer over at In The Money Media. And he's, of course, on on Fox. Fox Sports, yeah. It's all, you know, I, I on the show, in, in, in my character, I play on the show, I always act super annoyed about uh, how Jonathan has blown up and become this media superstar. <laughs> but in real life, I'm extremely proud of him and think it couldn't happen to a nicer more hardworking guy. And you know, he and I have a lot more ideas too about what we can do. Um, just to tie it back to the original question about contests, it's it's still early days. It's contests, they're, they're in a funny point now with DRF out of the game. Mm. And there's there's I think they're bigger than ever in terms of dollars bet, but it, it's at a weird point where it doesn't feel like it's growing as much as it felt like it was growing maybe a year or two ago. But I think this is just a... Uh, we're sort of at a plateau getting ready to head up another summit. And JK and I have several ideas about how we might accomplish that. And hint, hint, we talked about poker and some of the things that grew that. Well, to find the right way to show this product on television, mm -hmm. I think that really could be the missing link in the chain to what could, what could really blow things up. And we've got some ideas and are in some conversations with some uh, industry leading type parties that'll hopefully continue the upward trajectory of growth in contests. But make no mistake, it's still a, a very uh, fertile period for them. And I'm looking forward to covering this year's Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge and NHC. I feel like those championship events have really established themselves. I feel like throughout the year, it'd be great if there could be something a little bit more cohesive for, uh, for players to follow and, and play along with. And, and, and again, I, I expect I expect that contests are really a one-way train heading forward. Well, as someone who has entered, uh, won a seat in Saturday's qualifier for the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge, I hope to see you there. Actually, that would be fantastic. I'll be around. I'll <laughs> yeah. be around. I'm doing some work for the Breeders' Cup. I'm going to be hopefully doing some work for – I know I'm doing some writing and hopefully doing some on-air stuff for at the races slash Sky Sports Racing. And, I, and I'll have one eye on what's going in, uh, on in the contest. And I'm glad. Hopefully, you'll get yourself in there and I'll have – another player to root for. Ah. So, you know, contests have been a growth area. Maybe you know, there's been some plateauing, as you mentioned. Um, but it, it actually kind of ties into one thing I think about is, is I think the idea of playing in a contest may actually be in some ways more attractive to new people to the game than trying to, you know, go up to the teller and place a, you know, a, a complex bet at the window at the track. But uh, to me, one of the challenges of the game, it's the... It's the information barrier, and I'm not talking about whether the information is free or not, which is you know one debate that is going on. But how do you make that information more accessible to new people? Because I, I've told this story in the podcast a couple of times, but taking my now son-in-law to the 2004 Belmont with Smarty Jones and uh, trying to explain the racing form to him and watching his eyes glaze over after about <laughs> one minute, I, this there's got to be a better way, right? Now try that on people who are 15 years younger and see how quickly the yeah. eyes glaze over. Yeah. And, and that's part of what this free data debate that I'm a big believer in and a huge supporter in the work 
that uh, Thoroughbred Idea Foundation are doing on this topic is I feel like, and, and again, this is one of the most misunderstood things. You'll see these well-meaning people on Twitter uh, defending the idea of paying for data. Nobody's saying that premium data services right. should be giving away their information for free. We're talking about the raw information here to give, because what I think will happen is people will play around with new ways of pre presenting that free data. I mean, the, the, the obvious vision being some sort of app that will resonate with younger people and give them a way in and a way to play. And then when that's ready to be commercialized on a large scale, then yes, then they'll pay for the commercial license to distribute said data in a premium product, product form. And I mean, that's, I think, just one of the most misunderstood things. Nobody's talking about, okay, now the racing form has to be free. Right. It, right. Obviously, you know, they've the got sheets. proprietary stuff in there and that, and they, and they of course have a right to do that it's it's just it's at a more basic level because i don't see i mean probably the most progressive not not probably the most progressive presentation of horse racing data now which i quite like is timeform us but i still feel like even that's probably too rooted in the old past performance way yeah. of looking at the world to like fully resonate with a 19 year old um just from the for the, the conversations i've had with younger people looking at data I think something that looks more like a game app um, that has different ways that you can either use it a little more like a black box to give you the answer, but also crucially gives you the opportunity to go through and do the work yourself. Right. Because I mean, that's right. one thing I've learned about horse players and what appeals to people in the game is, you know, you don't want to look at the crossword and have the crossword like all filled out for you all the time. When you're learning, it might be nice to have the clue what that difficult one that had right. you completely stopped was, but it's about doing the work yourself. And I just don't know that our tools that you and I are comfortable with are ever going to resonate with these younger no, people. And, and I, I really think the free data conversation uh, is largely about enabling those tools to exist. Well, I, th I think my own personal feeling on this is that if you give people enough information that they can make their own decisions, uh, and perhaps have some success at the track, right? hopefully they'll have some success, then all of a sudden they're going to want to dive in deeper and they're going to want to do those premium type digs that we talked about, right? Um, but you've got to give them a way to at least get uh, comfortable without costing a lot right up right up front, right? Um, give them something to hang their hat on. And then, like I said, if they have some success, they're going to want to dive in deeper. Because it's, look, I, I always say this, it's better than any casino game when you think about the takeout in any casino game, right? Uh, in horse racing, if you have an idea uh, and you know you can get paid on it, you're going to do way better than than your any any casino game ever invented. Yeah, it's. I mean, I phrase it a little differently, but I think I know the point you're getting at. It, the cost of the wager is considerably less in the casino game, but unless we're talking about counting cards in blackjack yeah, or right. finding a machine with a flaw you're never going to be able to turn that in your favor whereas if you have a good handicapping reason to beat a to beat a, a four to one shot you can that's all it takes to turn our game in some instances right. in maybe i'll say a three to one shot into a positive expectation so that ability to turn it into a positive expectation makes it far better than any casino game be a lot better if it was priced better that's a whole other yeah, conversation yeah, <laughs> but it's it's i i think it's the best gambling game in the world i think it's the most intellectually challenging and the most fun i think there's a lot of problems with the way the tote 
product is presented. It's one of the many reasons I love encouraging new players to get into contests. It also gives you a chance to have a route in every race without doing something irresponsible, like betting every race uh, on the tote. <laughs> and the the odds drop, odds are still a thing, but it's controlled within the environment. And it's just a qu- question of game selection. Instead of, you know, even that first first time at the track and you're betting $2, you're betting into the pools with the, the sharpest money in the world. Whereas you can find the equivalent uh, contest and you're playing against people. The, the, the amount of buy-in, if you're talking about a low buy-in, is going to limit the, the quality of your opposition. And you're going to have a lot, lot, lot better chance betting against them than having money in pools that you don't know where they're even going to end up against the biggest computer bettors in the world oh. it's, it's 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 very very tote betting is very very tough and i mean obviously i do it and there there are times to do it but especially when you're starting out i think cutting your teeth with contests is uh is a much smarter way to do it honestly at this point in time you get more action for a controlled cost with better financial terms well, when, you know, one of the other things, and, and the whole toad issue with, you know, the horse who is 9 to 1 goes off at 7 to 2. You know, you bet him at 9 to 1, he goes off at 7 to 2. That has just become so exacerbated even more over the last year or two, I would say. But the other thing I find really interesting about contests, um, and I've taken advantage of this and, and learned a lot from it, is if you're playing in an online contest, you can go back and figure out what the winners did if you're not one of them, right? And hundred percent. You know that is a huge learning opportunity, not just about the handicapping, but you know I know a favorite topic of yours, just kind of game strategy, right? At what point did they go for the long odds horse versus the short odds horse? Uh, what type of contest did they use the long odds versus the short odds? Um, that's a tremendous learning opportunity if you can play in these online contests. And it works great dovetailing with that idea we were talking about before about the players themselves becoming stars. You can know that Tony Joe is at the top of the leaderboard, um, at least before the last race in almost every contest, and usually after the last race, too. Didn't mean to knock you there, (laughs) Tony, if you're listening. Um, I honestly just think he's, he's just incredible and the major the major win for him is coming down the pike anytime but anyway you know a guy like that he's so analytical and you can go and you can look at what he did in the tournament i mean gosh if you can't learn something from that i can't help you right 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 hey peter let's pivot away from horse racing for a little bit here you've written a number of books on other topics as well right tell us tell us about those if you don't mind it started with music perhaps not surprisingly given <laughs> the, the background yeah. we were talking about before i, I we just I was playing a bar game with a friend of mine who's actually very involved in horse racing now, would be a good potential future uh, interviewee okay. for you as well, Frank Scatoni, who does oh, the sure. Newcomers Seminar Frank, at Del right? Mar. Yes, yeah. exactly. The great uh, handicapping uh, pick four stuff he does for the Santa Anita website. But anyway, by sheer coincidence, we, were, we sat in adjoining cubicles at Simon & Schuster in the mid-1990s. Oh, no And way. we were fast <laughs> friends into uh, everything uh, sport. Uh, uh. Um, and, you know, we played in a fantasy league. We, we lamented the Knicks. Uh, there was an OTB Still. across the street. Where, that's right. An OTB across the street where we made bets on the 1996 Triple Crown. But uh, we, we would also, you know, we'd go out after the softball games we'd play in. And, and I remember after one of them playing this bar game that was, it was just an email that got sent around with like 100 lines from 1980s songs and you just had to identify which song oh cool the line was from. we made a book out of it oh. <laughs> and we, did, we followed <laughs> yeah. up with a sequel 
about uh, movie 80s movies too so it was funny it was a little early for nostalgia we were doing 80s nostalgia in 1996 but <laughs> it, it was funny because the i just i've never been so happy at a movie as when i went to see the wedding singer on uh, on opening day and i did love the movie and it is hilarious oh, it's a very but funny it movie. wasn't it wasn't just that it was when we saw that movie I, I walked out of there and i think i called him right away and was like buddy we're getting paid this idea is the, gonna sell the nostalgia is there yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we are not too early we're right on time and and so that was the start of that and then more seriously with music books i ended up collaborating with my father on the book we did I thought about it a lot this summer. It was for the 40th anniversary of Woodstock, which, of course, just had its 50th. And then my father's uh, last book we collaborated on together, the book we did about the Rolling Stones that, unfortunately, he did not stick around to, uh, to, to see get published. But we had finished the manuscript. And I also edited a book of his about Simon and Garfunkel. So I think of those three as a trilogy that was a great pleasure to get to work on with him. And then sure. because gambling is related to everything in my life, at a poker game at some point in gosh when must this have been it must have been the early 2000s uh one of the it was a lot of publishing people in the game not surprisingly given where i was still working at the time and one of the editors says hey i'm looking for a writer for a guy named chris jericho does anybody know who this guy who this jericho is <laughs> and i think i i launched into a jericho impression at that point we've had a few beers <laughs> and uh a couple of phone calls later i ended up getting the gig and uh, chris has become a good friend for folks who don't know, very successful professional wrestler sure, and yeah. rock star. Um, I think we were born in the same hospital around the same time when his dad was playing for the New York Rangers. Anyway, Chris and I have become good friends and I've had the pleasure of collaborating with him on four books. And I mean, I could, there, there, there's other stuff as well, but I think those are mostly the, the high points unless you had something specific for me. No, 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 that's great. But but let me ask you, uh, let's talk about the top five books that you have read that are not by you. Oh, I like that one. I guess that means I don't get to pick Mike Maloney's book because that's the first one that pops up. Okay. Or are we talking about books? Are we talking about horse racing books or books as a whole? Uh, books as a whole, but actually in my own personal list, I would oh, include wow. one horse racing book as well. But go ahead. Books as a whole. Let's Oh my gosh! Well, the first thing that pops to mind, maybe people, but uh, I can I can live up to my reputation as a failed academic when I throw uh, Ulysses out there wow. as uh, <laughs> one of my favorite books I've ever read and one I you I return to and think about. I yeah I I okay. did uh, I took a I took a couple of classes on Joyce. I actually wrote my my thesis. I had a, a the, this program I was in English program I was in at NYU. You had to write a thesis, and I wrote mine on Joyce. So I did a lot of studying and in wow. other areas of my life happened to have the amazing opportunity to study that book with uh, uh, Professor Eddie Epstein, who was a, a very famous Joyce scholar at Queens College. Okay. And he happened to live in my town. And in the summer, he'd do these. Anyway, I got very lucky and had a lot of great ways in um, to, to that. And for me, that still rates. If you just, if you make me, if you make me pick one, that one, uh, that one leaps, uh, leaps to the wow. top. All right. Uh, I Cops. mean, gosh, one that, one that crosses both lines of just unbelievable narrative writing and also horse racing. And I wonder if this is the one you were going to mention the Bill Knack secretariat book, uh, deserves, deserves its place at the top of the pantheon. Now, if I'm including all of literature, I'm not sure it would make the top five, no offense to the memory of the great Mr. Knack, but I'm just sort of, it's very well, it's very here. well done. It's very well yeah. done. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's terrific. And for folks who don't want to spend the time to read that whole book, I know it's a you know it's a TLDR world. 
um, find the piece he wrote upon Secretariat's passing. Uh, yes, for SI. Sports Illustrated. Yes. Oh my yeah, God, yeah. You, you'll get oh, a man. lot of the flavor, and it's just also just such an amazing personal essay at the at the same time. Heart, there, really, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so good a good word for it. Yeah, but yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, I could. I don't. I my mind goes in seventeen directions trying to answer that question, but those those give you a little bit of the a little bit of the flavor of the way my my reading taste works. I'm I'm all over the place, and I. I have been lately last few years really trying to prioritize finding more time to read, whether it's revisiting books or reading hmm. books about eras I'm fascinated, the music scene in New York in the 1970s and or, or you know, Boston in the 60s or whatever it is. I try to, to, to continue learning at all times. A, a reading is just such a great opportunity for continued adult education. Actually, uh, you brought up a, a- it just came to my head. Uh, if you want to, you may have already talked to this person, but someone who knows the New York music scene in the Boston music scene back in the sixties is very conversant, very, very sharp guys, Peter Wolf. Oh, I mean, I know Peter, Peter, and my dad okay. knew each other. Yep. You know, Peter was BCN back in the day. Uh, what was the character right, he played right. on the air called? I'm spacing on the, I'm spacing on the character he played on air, but he, he features prominently in this great book I just read. The book that, that inspired me to talk about Boston in the '60s was this uh, history of Astral Weeks book that a guy named Ryan oh, Clark sure. wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right, a terrific right. book. Yeah, but Peter's all over that, and he. Uh, I remember when Peter wrote his own book, my dad must have interviewed him and gotten it signed. And Peter's signature. Now, this is unfortunate. I don't know if I still have this book. I don't know if it made it through to me it, out of my dad's effects, and it's too bad because it was just. One of the greatest inscriptions I've ever read. Peter Wolf wrote to my father, from one voice in the night to another. Oh, I've never forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I'd welcome the opportunity to meet him. I understand he's a little reclusive. Yeah, he's still doing shows. He's still out there. I, I saw him actually one night, probably three or four years ago now, in a 200-seat hall. And uh, uh, I will tell you, I grew up in the 60s and 70s in Boston, so like every young lad in the Boston area at that time, a huge Jay Giles fan, right? Um, so now I'm seeing Peter Wolf at this small, intimate theater, 200-seat theater, three or four years ago. And as much as I love Jay Giles, I thought to myself, Jay Giles' band was holding this guy back. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's so talented. Um, His solo stuff is great too. He oh, has that fantastic. album about about fifteen. Gosh, I'm gonna I'm get I'm bad with the years game. But he had a solo record about I don't know twelve to fifteen years ago that I had that I that I thought I just thought was great. Just seems like such a fascinating guy. And yeah, I didn't mean reclusive like he doesn't play. He just I got the impression he's not the easiest guy to just like. Uh, have a conversation with but i i don't know it's, it's probably not a bad idea to try just because i'm sure he's got so many amazing oh, stories a million of them yeah no you know the one uh, horse racing book that i was thinking of uh, and i i have the secretary book here and and i love it but the other one um and i think some people have a hard time getting through it but uh laughing in the hills oh it's wonderful yeah, yeah. barrich is a genius yeah oh, oh that's that that would definitely be in the top any top uh probably a top three for me as well it's just it's such gorgeous writing. It exactly. does capture the sort of the the oddly healing aspect of uh, of our game. I I, I totally uh, totally respect that decision. And you know, he's somebody I've been meant to talk to for a long time, and kind of forgot. I think I dropped the ball on this. So much has changed in my life um, early this year, starting this company on my own, and I, I've lost track of some things. But 
I'm going to try to track him down, I think, this winter and have a conversation about that book and yeah. the great book he wrote about national hunt racing. And, right, and, right. Uh, Really have an opportunity to, uh, to 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 get to know him a little bit because he is a friend of a friend, so it shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, and you know, uh, I, I'm not going to spoil the the line where the title comes from, but I will tell you, it's a line that I've gone back to many times and just read over and over again because, as you know, having read the book, it's it's about horse racing, but it's really about life and sadness and grief and and. Uh, the the line that the title Laughing in the Hills comes from is just a haunting, hauntingly beautiful one. Like like the whole book is really it's just very beautifully written, as you said. The, just from the first two sentences, I think you're you're you. It's for me, and I think for for many readers, uh, I, you're just going to have the hook in you from the first yeah. from the yeah. first couple of sentences. I'm surprised you said that. You've heard people have an uh, uh, alternate take on it where they find it a little dense. Well, it's Twitter, so you got to be careful about that. <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure they're literate, so I'm not sure it counts. <laughs> Talking to the TLDR crowd. I'm not really too interested in their opinions on literature. Yeah, when if they spell the word book wrong, I suppose you can discount <laughs> it. <laughs> Phenomenal. There's a lot of great people out there. I don't want anybody to feel offended. There is, despite its reputation, which I, you know, is often deserved. There also is yep. some meaningful discourse. And I've met some great people on there. So, you know, those of you... You, you don't be offended. You, you, those of you who you, who should be offended, you know who you are and you can be offended, but the vast majority of people out there, you're, I, uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those things. It's a, it's a tool. It depends on how you use it. And it's a real, you take the good with the bad, uh, situation. I, I, I detest yeah, exactly. it I as right. the outrage machine. I love it as a very easy way. I can say, Hey, you got a question about contacts? Hit me on here. Just so much easier than spelling out an email or email exactly question. no I, I i i think that's right i i think that's right hey uh, we we talked about data a little bit and i just want to leave on this one last if they, i was going to ask you if they, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and there were three things you could change about horse racing we talked about data what are two other things that you would change peter we hit on the pricing you know i yep. i think it's i think unfortunately the the, the economics of the game are tilted towards the next quarter as opposed to the next quarter century and that creates a disincentive for a lot of track executives and state legislators and people like that you know commission boards is what i mean by legislators to to make the right decisions about what's best for the long-term future of the game i mean it's a that's a that's a, a hoary old chestnut that you'll hear a lot of people say but I, I think it has to be on my list of the top three and i think number three is i, I think we just got to do a better job um, taking care of the horses themselves. And I mean that yes. both on the track and yep. it sure did seem like we had some strides forward at Del Mar this week, a result Mar. I didn't yep. think would even be possible of having, uh, of having no fatalities. I mean, the more we can do, the more protocols to be put in place to protect horses in the afternoon, but also not just that to, to race them in such a way and create uh, a condition book where there's, and, and there's been str positive strides in this direction. But where there's there's more accountability and you can't just drop drop horses down and, and then that's the end of your right. commitment to them. Finding right. a way to have a hundred percent, you know, to minimize uh, to minimize injuries as much as possible on the track and to have a hundred percent retirement rate, that'd go a long way to ensuring our sports future in an age where uh, most people, including myself, let their dogs sleep in their beds. We're very far from an go. agricultural society at this point. Um, I really think for the future of racing, it's important to uh, to take care of 
to take care of the animals. And, and I think that has to be on, on any top three as well. I, I, I agree with you 100% on that. And uh, very impressed with what they were able to do at Del Mar this summer with the, you know, not only the, it's the morning workout inspections, but the between races inspections. And, and, and I think you, you touched on something too. The condition book was written in such a fashion that um, some of that, you know, low level stuff uh, was not as obtainable, let's say, as maybe it had been uh, earlier in the season. I've been a big fan of the, the, this rule where the void, the concept of the voided claims, mm-hmm. I think is great. I just think that that's really good news for, for horses, because when you think about it, without that, you know, what's the, you, there's too much of an economic incentive and it doesn't, I'm not saying it happened all the time and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. But when you just think about it logically, if you can do whatever you can to hold the horse together and you know, it's not going to be your problem. Like that's not going to lead to the most ethical decision making. It's just not. I mean, we're we're uh, we're human beings, and and unfortunately, we have these uh, we have these <laughs> selfish tendencies sometimes. And to make it so that if there is a problem that's discovered right away, that you don't get to just uh, wash your hands of it, that's that's a positive thing. And I, I think there's other ways to maybe write books too, where you just have more options for lower level horses, where where they don't have to be for sale all the time that also might lead to, to mm, greater care and, yeah. and less just passing along of, of responsibility, which I, I don't think is ultimately healthy for the game. And I, I don't think it suits us in, in 2019 under these current conditions. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we talk with Eric Wing, Communications Director at HorseTourneys.com. In the meantime, may the horse be with you.